welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is still on assignment. With I don't have a guest co-host this week uh, filling in because it's kind of a last minute change. But I do have a guest we will get to in just a moment. Uh, I have an ad to get to as the listeners know. I also just a quick update from last week. The St. Louis Blues are still the Stanley Cup champions and will be uh, until uh, for time immemorial. That will always be true. For the first time ever, the Stanley Cup is in St. Louis. I'm still very high on that uh, a week and a half later. So let me tell you first about TweakedAudio.com. It's available. Sorry. TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Today I was listening to uh, the the mid-2000s are back in full swing because I was listening to new music by Spoon and new music by The Hold Steady. Um, and, uh, you know, made me feel like I was fresh out of college again, uh, the whole world at my feet, um, a Stanley cup champion for the St. Louis blues still in the future. Uh, <laughs> and it sounded all the, all the better for being listened to on my tweaked earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweaked But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweaked and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now, I have to get to my guest because I'm finding that after a dozen years of podcasting with someone, I don't like just talking. I need to talk to someone. So joining me for this episode, after a long hiatus from appearing on the show is our old friend mariah e gates hi i'm glad to be back i'm we're very glad to have you back i'm glad to have someone to talk to yes. it was a very long 90 seconds of not <laughs> having someone to talk to i mean some people do this podcast that is just them i my my hat's off to them i can't do that yeah, yeah. i have to have a conversation yeah exactly i feel it um so how before we get into the topic how have you been for the past like four years um yeah well i was in georgia for three years um which is crazy uh georgia is a state uh-huh. <laughs> and so it's a state of mind and i um lived there for three years for a job i worked at filmstruck those of you who listen i'm sure loved filmstruck yes and unfortunately filmstruck is no more um but now i am back in la and i miss california so much i love california so um, but it's, I've, you, when you move across the country, your like immune system kind of doesn't like it. So I've been sick off and on for the last three months. So I've seen less movies since moving back to LA than I would if I had been in Atlanta <laughs> at the same Atlanta. amount of time, but yeah. mostly cause I've been sick and not, not leaving my house, which really sucks. What's the, uh, I, I know you and I talked about this the last time I saw you, I think, but, uh, what is the 
cinema scene in Atlanta outside of the multiplexes? Where did, where did you go? It's not bad. I actually lived um, walking distance from a landmark theater and okay. they, uh, for a while they took movie pass. Ooh. So I yeah. would see like t- a movie on a Saturday and then, a, and then um, for free and then, or free, you know, movie pass, whatever. And then I would see a second one, mm-hmm. pay for it. And then on Sunday, sometimes I would see another movie pass one. Cause every, you know, um, unlike LA where the, everything's spread out, they sort of front load all the movies in one weekend because they're trying to cram it all in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the platform releases. So okay. you'll get things that have been in New York, like New York and LA. And then six weeks later, you know, it, that whole six weeks, all of those films are in Atlanta for one weekend. Okay, sure. So there was yeah. a lot of um, yeah. just trying to get all the like f- foreign and documentary films like watched in one go. Yeah. I have growing up in St. Louis, like being a budding, a budding cinephile in St. Louis, Missouri. I have some memories yeah. of, of that. And then there's um, a theater called the Terra cinemas and they um, cater to the older art house okay crowd so I was often the only young person there is it named after the plantation from um, Gone with the Wind? it may be yes okay. I I'm pretty sure and then there is a independent theater I think it's the longest running independent theater in Atlanta called the plaza and they're lovely and do yeah. all kinds of stuff they also do they're starting to bring rep theater back so for a while they let me program silent films there that's awesome which was like insane yeah they let me program like um what was it um there was a really obscure one I played. Oh, it's gone. Um, Oscar Micheaux. They let me program an Oscar okay. Micheaux film, which was shocking. But Were you able, ever able to get some live accompaniment? Yeah. The yeah. last few ones I did, um, they fixed. They have a Wurlitzer. Yeah, and they had it fixed. They got a grant to fix it. And so they had a guy, the guy who plays the Wurlitzer at the Fox Theater, which anyone from Atlanta knows the Fox Theater. It's a live venue. Um the guy came and did the, so the last one I was there for before I moved was, uh, um, Flesh and the Devil. Oh, yeah. John Gilbert film. Yes. So that was amazing. Uh, did you see, and I know you, I, I didn't run into you at all at TCM Fest, but did, did you see a, a Woman of Affairs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That I was, love that film. I love I love Garbo. I love Gilbert. I yeah, can't not watch them. About maybe It was definitely up there. Uh, I had a really good TCM Fest this year. I didn't see any stinkers, but that was up there at the top. Yeah, I, I just will always see like Garbo and I will always see Gilbert. I actually mm-hmm. programmed the three that I programmed before I left were all Gilbert or Gilbert adjacent films. Cause, um, I think the March one was flesh and the devil. And then in April they were showing, um, Ben Hur, the silent Ben Hur and John Gilbert has a small like cameo in that. And then they, for May, I got them to do the big parade, which is like John Gilbert's yeah. big, um, I've never war epic. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's the greatest anti-war war film or one of the greatest anti-war war films. It's great. Uh, well, we should probably get toward the topic because I think that we have a lot to talk about today. Yes. Um, listeners, loyal listeners know what we do on the podcast every 10 episodes except for not every 50 episodes. So you see, if the number of the episode, because all the episodes are numbered, <laughs> if the number of the episode ends in a zero, but that but is not divisible evenly by 50, it's a profile episode. So, um, see, that's so weird to do that without Tyler here. It's like a bit that he and I do, <laughs> and I don't have a per- the person to do the bit with, so I feel like I was like rushing through it. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I uh, commented recently that anyone who uh, checks out my letterboxed could probably figure out whom the profile subject was going to be because <laughs> I've been cramming yeah. uh, over, the, over the past uh, cu- couple weeks. But uh, in, in keeping with our 
somewhat recent traditions of turning our regular profile episodes into uh, tributes of memoriams of people who have the who, film luminaries whom we've lost recently. We will be talking about the career of Agnes Varda. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you, I asked you to be on the show because uh, now I feel like I'm pigeonholing you hmm. because the last two times you were on the show was when you were doing your 2015 year of With women. only watching yeah. uh, films directed by women. And that uh, those appearances in that project had a big effect on me and has uh, permanently altered how many uh, films I seek out. That's exactly uh, what women. I was yeah. trying to do. So that that's great. Um and so, you know, to do a, a female uh, filmmaker plus, I wasn't sure, you know, at the time that she passed away, I'd only seen a handful of her of her films. Um, luckily, in the interim between when Tyler and I decided to do this episode. Uh, yeah, sorry, Tyler couldn't be here. But uh, and doing it, um, uh, the tragic thing was, yeah, film struck one away. But the Criterion Channel yeah, showed came up. Back. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and there's a there's a ton on there. There's some on Canopy, and there's so there's. Uh, I was actually able to see um, a fair amount of her movies. Most of the Varda I watched was actually on Filmstruck when we had her as director of the week one week because mm-hmm. um, we didn't we didn't just have the Criterion ones. We had all of the ones that um, like Kung Fu Master and some of those yep. more obscure ones. Um, so, but uh, I don't funny is the wrong word, but. Um, Strangely, I guess the literally the day I was moving from Atlanta, I was getting like I was in the hotel by the airport and about to get take my cat on a plane, uh-huh. like a one way ticket from Atlanta to L.A. Uh, was when Varda died. Yeah. And it was strangely like a almost a perfect like ending to that part of yeah. my life because yeah. um, the time at Filmstruck is when I really like delve deep into her work and she had you know such a renaissance that year with faces places and yeah. we had her on the podcast and there was just a lot of varda in that job and then i was leaving you know that life in that job and then she died and i was like oh man yeah. this was a lot and you were with your cat which is very with fitting cat, because she is, was a big cat yeah, person she's like the the like patron saint of cat ladies i think yeah yeah the the her production company it's in a Tamaris, is that yeah. it, the logo is her her cat, mm-hmm. uh, and there are lots of cats certainly in some of the movies we'll talk about. Now, um, these profile episodes we generally go just discuss the career chronologically, but um, we we never resist saying if something comes up that makes you think of a later film or wants to, when you want to go back, feel free to do that. Especially in a career like that of Anya Sarda, in which all of her work seems to constantly be in conversation with itself. It's almost impossible not to, to talk about movies from different eras when you bring up, when you bring up one, you know? Yeah. And it's also in conversation with so many other artists that were in her sphere. Obviously Mm -hmm. Demi is throughout, but also Godard and some of these others, or you can, you just feel it, especially like faces places. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll get there. We will get there. Uh, and speaking of, well, speaking of her collaborations with great uh, filmmakers, her first film, uh, La Pointe Court from 1955, was edited by Alain René. Um, yes. Uh, four years before he would go on to make uh, Hiroshima Mon War, right? That would be 1959? Yeah. Um, so it's 15, 1955, and, and this is uh, La Pointe Court is the movie that... Um, yeah, a thing you heard a lot, I think, when she passed away was a lot of people saying not only was she a member of like a part of 
the French New Wave. There's an argument to be the, that she's the founder of it because Le Point Court is so early and has so many of these hallmarks of using, you know, this this sort of uh, uh, on the fly type of feel, this very naturalistic, impressionistic type of type of feel, using non actors. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on Le Point Court? I'm assuming I, you've seen. No, it. I've seen it and I love it. And I think Varda would pretty much say that she wasn't really even part of what's considered the French new wave. Cause they were really a club that started as these like reviewers mm-hmm. who would hang out, you know, with Henri, Henri Langlois and then right for Cahiers de Cinemas. And then they became filmmakers and she wasn't part of that at all. She, um, just wanted to make a movie sort of on her own. There's a great, um, special feature on the criterion edition of Le Point Court that, has her talking about like why she decided she wanted to make a movie, how she went about making it and how weird it was that they called her the grandmother of the French new wave when she was like 24, when she made it and (laughs) not intending to start any wave or anything. She just, they just lumped her with it and seemed to, Um, yeah, she was a photographer and yeah, her actual, um, it seems like her filmmaking friends like Alain Renee and Chris Marker are more of that other yeah, the, the the left bank group, which is like making films at the same time. Exactly, I would put her more in line with them. But really, I think Varda just sort of transcended any grouping. And yeah. if you look at her films, like they don't really fit with any of the styles that were emerging. So then. what? Um, what did make her want to make a movie? Because I feel like she she made movies her entire career, and you can watch them at any point, and never do you feel like she's it never feels like she's reacting to what's going on in movies at the time. She's completely no, just following her. Own I think, I think she was a visual storyteller and started, you know, photography and then was like, no, the best way to tell stories is with imagery, with moving imagery. And she just, you know, looked into how this, how the system in France was at the time and was like, I'm not going to wait till I'm 40 mm-hmm. to do this. This is dumb. I'm going to, you know, get a band of, of ragtag people together, get some, you know, film and just, just do it. And she didn't like, you can see in the film, she was just trying a lot of things. That's why there's so many, um, very arty. It does really feel like a first film and, but in a good way, um, because she's, she's not influenced by anything you can see in like some of Godard's early films or especially Truffaut's early films, the influence of American cinema. And I don't think you see it in hers because it's truly the images that she wanted to make based on just her artist's intuition and less, filmic well the thing about the point court for those who I, I guess you don't know the story it's actually two different stories that go back and forth sort of it's this the this group of fishermen and then there's this young couple who like i guess live in paris and the the, the man is from this this fishing yeah, neighborhood and I she's think, come to visit him and they're I trying think to that decide. was roughly inspired by demi and oh, his okay. like i think he grew up in a similar town if i remember correctly um his, but it's his, you know, the, cause they were together this whole time and it was his sort of, um, does he want to stay, you know, mm-hmm. city kids and country kids and do you stay in the city? Do you go back to the country? All of that. So she, she's from the city. She, I, I think so. Okay. I, mean, I don't I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I'm pretty um, sure the influence for that half of the film was based on his, you know, yeah. returning to the, his hometown and feeling these nostalgia feelings. And that's why the, the, it's the man in the, relationship that's having trouble letting go of his past um the thing that's interesting about the it being sort of two different narratives and the way that uh this is an oversimplification but the way that we've talked about agnes uh, anis varda i keep having to say anis 
not Agnes. Yeah. Agnes. Uh, anyway, um, the way that she sort of bridges the new wave and these left bank things is that, again, this is an oversimplification, but this sort of, you know, the what, did I, what was the term I used before? On the fly sort of like uh, uh, almost like post-neorealist stuff with the... the um, uh, with the fishermen feels like the beginning of the, the, the new wave and the other stuff I mentioned Alan Rene being the, um, the, the, the editor, the stuff between the two couple, especially the, their intonations and the way that they're framed when they talk to each other, you know, like not looking at each other at yeah. 90 degree angles is so, uh, last year, Marion bad. It yeah. feels like, I mean, that would be like five years, six years later. Um, and, and it feels like, uh, it's not a surprise to learn that Alain Rene was involved in this film uh, and was clearly influenced by by what she was doing. Yeah, her her blocking is very similar to the blocking he he will do later in his yeah. career. Um, it also starts out with tons of cats. There's cats in so many different frames. There's an, a sequence where the women are dealing with their fish, and there's just cats everywhere. And one of them goes like, "What are we going to do with all these cats?" <laughs> um, there's a really great scene where the couple are walking, and this conversation is completely like immersive. But the way that Varda has it framed, you know, they're kind of walking out of the frame, and this cat is walking closer to the camera on the sand. And the cat steals the whole <laughs> scene, and part of you is like did Varda do this so the cat would steal it or did the cat just happen to come in and she couldn't help but like let the cat steal the emotional beat because she loves cats so much? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like this is, I'm glad you got into the, not the, not cats in particular, which you already mentioned, but the idea that, that will come up from time to, uh, throughout her career, that it always feels like she's just making a movie about what she's, interested in not just at the time in her life but sometimes literally in the moment yeah like there are parts that we'll get to later in other parts of her film where there are entire sections of the film that aren't about what the film is ostensibly about because she just sort of followed this down this alley that interested her it's very similar i think to when malik makes films where he has an idea of what he wants to do but when he's shooting if something else is more interesting at that moment he'll just shoot it yeah and i think you can see that in varda's films yeah as well um, should we jump ahead? Uh, and, and what what should we jump ahead to? What's next for you? Well, I, I don't. I would not want to skip over the next few shorts if we can briefly talk yeah, about them. No, Have you seen them? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I haven't seen anything until um, Cleo. And so. Then, okay, so well, um, Diary of a Pregnant Woman is the English translation of her next short. And it's very surrealistic. Um, she made it in her neighborhood, about her neighborhood, while she was pregnant with her son and what it felt like. And it's both beautiful and grotesque at the same time. And they, um, there are sequences where, like, you know, there's, like, an egg and then suddenly it's, like, a chicken, like, dead chicken in a glass and all kinds of just... It's gross and, and amazing, and you know, the, throughout her career, she'll she she does that with um, with food and animals, where she'll frame them in ways that are just utterly disgusting. I'm thinking yeah. of there's a scene in Faces Places that's like that, that's amazing. Um, but it's just really about all of the ways the body changes during pregnancy and the way that um, you can get attached to a, a place when you're going through a big emotional uh, event in your life, and so mm-hmm. it's both about that and the the neighborhood and it's, it's beautiful film, black and white. I think it's on the, um, Clio DVD. It's on one of the criterion DVDs, 
but it's good. And then the, the other one, and I'm not sure if it's on the DVD, but it's definitely on the Criterion channel is, um, I have it in the French title, but it's the Coast Côte d'Azur film. Okay. And I believe, La yeah, Côte d'Azur, I have it. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I believe it was commissioned and it was supposed to be like a um, travel log to get people to come to like the Côte d'Azur. But um, much like if you've ever seen, um, um, John Vigo has this short that's about Venice, I think, that okay. ends up being very like anti-bourgeois. Um, and this film does that too, where she uses her kind of snarky humor to mock the like bourgeois people that come to the coast and it's it's also grotesque and beautiful uh-huh. with like burning you know suntan bodies and all kinds of stuff it's beautiful technicolor um and it it both makes you want to go there but also makes you hate everyone who goes right. there and um i'd love to see how it was received by the people who paid for it um but i don't I have no idea how it was received oh wow that's see, we talked about her sort of career being in conversation with itself, the idea of being hired to do one thing and then maybe not being happy with what you do will come up again in lion's love, mm-hmm. uh, in about 10 years. Yes. Um, and then, uh, fiance's on the bridge. I think that's, that was the one she made with Anna Karenna that was filmed during the making of breathless okay. or during the making of, it was during the making of one of the Godard films and it's Godard and Anna Karenna. Um, it's probably band of outsiders era. Right. But it's a, a mock short silent film and it's just like it's something fun amongst friends back when everyone was still friends with Godard. <laughs> yeah, when the I feel like that ended pretty quick. Yeah, right? I mean there's a few good years with Godard in there and then yeah. everything fizzles. Uh and then of course the 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 sort of landmark, I guess, that uh at least was certainly the first film of hers that mm-hmm. I ever saw, the first film of hers that I ever heard of, uh is nineteen sixty two's Cleo from five to seven. Yes. That's um, that's often will be if there is one film by a woman on a list, it's often that film. Uh-huh. Um which both sucks and is telling of how good it is and how powerful it is and how um revolutionary it was and how influential it is. Uh it's one I saw in college. I think I was nineteen I actually saw it and then shampoo right after at the PFA and it was a very different, <laughs> um, screening series, but, um, it's just so beautiful and you don't uh, often see a film where one actress is it like it's, it's her, it's a tour de force of her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it takes place, uh, people who don't know the five to seven, it is, I guess it's supposed to be roughly real time, although it's actually even shorter. It's not even 90 yeah. minutes long yeah. um, or it's exactly 90 minutes long, isn't it? Uh, and it's uh, she. Her name's Cleo. She's a uh, somewhat well-known uh, singer and she's waiting for results about whether to she's going to find out whether or not she's terminally ill. And uh, she just sort of what, what does she do? She like gets tea with a friend yeah hangs, uh, out, with some, with a friend. hangs out with some cats yeah yeah she goes to um, like a songwriting session has a, a lot of melancholic conversations with a lot of melancholic people yeah pretty much yeah it's uh it, um and uh it again whenever tyler and i do these profile episodes we sort of find ourselves repeating ourselves because that's the way that a tour 
chip is that certain yeah. things come up again. But um, sort of in, in the same way as that cat, there are times like when the camera seems like it just gets distracted, you know, like yeah. when she's riding the streetcar, you know, it'll just like kind of look out the window for uh, for a minute or not a minute, a, mo- a moment she, or so. She does a good job of really setting the world that you're in with her characters by these little distractions. Yeah. Um, that's part of what I love about how immersive her films can be. Um, yeah. cause they'll follow one thing, but they really want you to, f- she really wants you to feel the world of the character. Yeah. Um, and there's one that is popping up in the eighties that I is, I'm thinking of is like the most, the most that we'll get there. Yeah. I look forward to that. But, um, I also, uh, her, philosophy i guess or at least what comes across in her films is very humanistic she seems to be very interested and very caring toward pretty much anyone um but i also think what i was surprised what what didn't occur to me with the little bit that i was familiar with her before i did this deep dive is that she she could be angry too. Oh, yeah. And, 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 um, I'm not, uh, yeah, I think Cleo from Red to Seven, like you said, is a little more melancholy than, than angry. But the way that this woman is, this woman who's, I, I can't even imagine the anxiety of waiting two hours to find out if you're terminally ill. And the way that she is condescended to, specifically mm-hmm. by like the male songwriters that she, um, that, that she has that rehearsal session with, uh, and, and the, 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 doctor who doesn't seem to even understand the weight of like the emotional weight of what he is, uh, is or isn't telling her. Um, there's some anger there. Part of it is from when, when this is made and where women's rights was at the time. Um, she's an independent woman, but she's slightly older independent. Not that she's old, but she's like an, at an age where most women would have been married at this time. And she chose a career instead. And she talks about that. And she talks about her career and what it means to her and what her looks mean to her and all this stuff. And I think part of why a lot of these men, and particularly the doctor, are condescending is at that time, if she were a married woman, her husband would know and have a right to not tell her if she was going to die or not. Like, there were, there are many stories of, true stories of women who died of one thing, who actually had cancer, but their doctors told their husbands and didn't tell them and so I think part of part of that is like male doctors tend at that time tended to be a lot hot, more hostile towards um, unmarried unmarried women patients yeah. and just women patients in general because it's like you know why am I talking to you where's your husband yeah. kind of thing and that's why you see a rise in female doctors in the latter half of the um, hmm. you know 20th yeah, century right. yeah it's like so, but I th- yeah, so I think this is something to, to, to mark here that'll come up a lot is that I think the first word that I think of when I think of Anya Svarta is humanist, but she is also very specifically feminist. And yes. I think as her films go on more, more directly politically. So in, in, in some of these, uh, well, we'll get to one sings the other doesn't, um, in a, in a little bit, but, um, but yeah, this is the, at least from what I've, you know, the only, I'd only seen one before that. This is the first real, uh, uh, strongly feminist note. I think, um, not that the point court isn't feminist, but it's not as, it doesn't seem to have that at top of mind. The mm-hmm. way that this one does. Um, the next for me is the, 
the short that comes right after this, which is Salut le Cubain, yep. which is, uh, uh, as the English subtitle says, uh, hi there Cubans. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you've seen this one? Yeah, I saw this one. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting, um, it's, it fits in with her, her documentary style very much so because all of her documentaries have a little bit of humor mm-hmm. and they're very interested in people's faces, people's movements, um, shapes, shapes that are being made by bodies. Like I think she's one of the great, um, filmmakers in capturing body movement. Mm-hmm. Um, even though she never really did like a dance film or anything, but she's definitely interested in the ways that humans move. Um, and the way they repose, like in the, the Cote d'Azur one, there's a lot yeah. of resting in that one. And I think there's a lot of interesting, um, parallels to that film and this film except that she's not insulting the Cubans the way she's insulting the bourgeois in the other one. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I'm not sure. I, I was on the fence as to whether or not I agree. Not that she's insulting them, but we're going to get into a film, a couple films from now, that I had some problems with. Mm. And Salula Cuban is on the fence of like, not that it's insulting, but is there some sort of, you know, white Westerner condescension. Like when you're, when you look at like, look at these. Yeah. Because at the, especially at this time, there was because of, uh, what was going on in this part of Latin America. And there was such a tendency to be like, yes, you know, on the side of the, 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 the communists, you know, they represent the people and not the imperialists. And I think by setting it up as this either or thing, it ends up, um, downplaying what, to the 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 more uh, violent and un, unseemly and inhumane aspects of what some of these communist revolutionaries were were doing, and also just when you lump an entire people together, especially when you're a white person lumping lumping a bunch of brown people together, it, it, it I don't know, I didn't. It's weird because I didn't I did not watch the movies chronologically, yeah. so sometimes my feelings about one movie would will be informed by a movie that we haven't talked about yet yeah so i i really liked uh so the cuban it feels fun um it it feels joyful it definitely does feel touristy though i don't know if i would agree that it feels condescending but it definitely is touristy and gazy yeah yeah that i would agree with uh but it is fun um and then okay next up is a real, maybe my favorite of her. I think my, I think most of my favorite Varda films are going to be her documentaries, but maybe my favorite of her narrative films is Le Bonheur, um, which means happiness, which I would just like to point out. Not a a happy movie, but but just (laughs) want to point out that the French word for happiness is boner. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) It's it's good. Like it's a good hour. Although that's not how we spell it. So, but boom means good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, so Le Bonheur is, yeah, like I said, it roughly roughly translates to happiness. Yeah, good hour, but yeah, a good feeling. Uh, and for the first act or so, it really lives up to its title. It's almost comically idyllic. Yeah. Seeing this couple and their young children and their perfect life together where they go on picnics and he, and they work, but they have great work-life balance and they get to eat Beautiful good food. flowers everywhere. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it it gets... It gets real, real sour. Yes. Um, and I think there's something almost, again, I keep coming back to the idea that the idea I had of Varda going into my deep dive 
was a very positive humanistic one and that was definitely held up mm-hmm. but there's so much else going on well, where this this movie is almost sadistic at times it's so happy that i felt that i, I don't know how, how you feel with this i felt at any moment that something terrible was going to happen and then eventually terrible things do happen that i didn't see yeah and then i, I can't i don't want to give this is the one like varda film sorry I'll, I'll, spoilers. this is the one yeah that i feel like i can't talk too much about because yeah, yeah you can spoil so yeah things happen that aren't what i'm what i was afraid of and then something happens at the end that is the kind of thing i was afraid of happening for the entire uh, first half hour or so yeah i like that it's made r- roughly around the same time ish that um umbrellas of Cherbourg. And they have, so, you know, obviously Jacques Demi and, and Varda were married and they would, you know, make one film, make the other film. And you can kind of see like color schemes are similar. Yeah. And, but in, in, uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, obviously the idyllic young couples, spoiler alert, get separated. Right. And you immediately see sort of what was, what could have been a great love separated and changed and, and life changes it right away. And in Varda's film, you see what is a great love if they get married. Right. Mm-hmm. And then that doesn't end quite well either. And it, I just find them very fascinating that both being separated and getting to have that love, neither of those in these two films really work out well in that storybook kind of way. Yeah. Um, so I, I often see them sort of in like, Obviously, Demi and, and Varda made it work, but like it's fascinating to see, yeah, how dark their films about love are. And I would say uh, to go back to what I was saying about Cleo and some of the future films about the, the the feminist point of view, I do think there's something dark, like you said, but also uh, a little. I don't know if cynical is the right word, but like yes, things go poorly for this couple, but the man weathers the changes a lot better than the woman yeah. can because uh, I guess because of the patriarchy just makes it easier for him to sort yeah, of and transition. It's, it's important in French history to know when this one was coming out because it's what 65, five, right? So this is about a year or two before, um, the big revolution of, of both, um, the student riots in 67 and there was a, like a women's uprising, um, similar to the, you know, the Robert burning movements in America in the seventies. And, um, I think this is sort of her looking at this final, this last generation of women who were raised one way Mm -hmm. and weren't raised to weather certain things because they were set up to have, think that the storybook life was what they wanted and, and they aren't prepared. They don't have the tools, like the emotional tools to prepare when that falls apart. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a film that I couldn't, I think, be made the way it was just a few years later in French society. So, uh, I also, but you know, I, I keep talking about sort of content and theme, but she's also a beautiful filmmaker. You talked about the colors. The opening title sequence of Le Bonheur is. It took me. Uh, a, a, a few seconds it has a very specific scheme to it and it took me a few times cycling through to realize what exactly was happening within the opening title sequence and it's uh, hypnotic and, and beautiful once you uh, once I grasped uh, what was going on there um, and then it's sort of um, uh, echoed in the at the end of the movie yes so uh, I'm ready to jump ahead two years I don't know when you have next uh, what do you have next far from Vietnam I have not seen that one. Okay. Does the Uncle Yanko come before or after that? Um, 
It's after, so okay, uh, or at least according to IMDb. Okay, great. Um, so far from Vietnam, I'll talk about this. Is the one that I can't really blame Varda. This is the one that left kind of a sour taste in my mouth. It's mm. a beautifully made film, but also it's made by I can't remember how many filmmakers, and there are no the credits are just listed at the beginning, so we don't know who made what. I think IMDb seems to have a guess as to which one. Alain Rene made because it's a documentary except for one part that's not a documentary mm-hmm. and they then I need to be credits that part to Alain Rene and then there is the Godard part this is why I feel like he was already growing apart from the group yeah because the Godard part he might not be credited but he makes very clear he starts with the slate that says directed by mm, <laughs> you yeah. know, director Godard on it and then he narrates it there's a different narrator for the entire rest of the film he narrates his part but um the movie's very well made. It's a fascinating document of the time and of um, this sort of uh, uh, the 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 leftists of the European leftists of the time and the way that they viewed early the early Vietnam War, uh, which is again what I was saying. The movie is virulently anti-American. That I understand, <laughs> given. You know, if you go to Vietnam and you see what American bombing was doing to Vietnamese people at the time, that part. I have no problem with the anti-Americanism. It is well-earned at the time. But I think, this is what I was saying about a little bit with the with uh, Salula Cuban, um, is that the picture of the Vietnamese is a little simplified. Mm. And I think... Did you like a noble savage kind of thing? Um, yeah, I guess sort of. Yeah, that, yeah, that's probably a good word for it, um, or a good term for it. And... and this, my opinion here is a little bit informed because about a year ago, I read a graphic memoir called Saigon Calling, mm. which is um, the the author, actually his family um, escaped Vietnam before the before what we think of as the war broken. The war had already started for them um, to basically to escape the Viet Cong that came to London. And a lot of what Saigon Calling is about is in his teenage years, this the author was a teenage like hippie in London, and uh, but. Uh, was constantly coming up against friends who were very pro Viet Cong because they were anti-American. You know, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. that dichotomy simplifies things. And on the one hand, I can't really blame because they didn't have the they don't have the hindsight. They don't have the perspective yeah. that we have. I can't blame this group of filmmakers, but it does make um, it, it. It did give Far from Vietnam a probably a different taste than it was supposed to give me you know it's supposed to be very very pro-vietnamese and anti-american and i found it to be again very like it comes by its anti-americanism very honestly Mm. it's the other part that i was like this is a little uh a little simplified a little condescending but it still is uh it's it's available you can rent it on amazon prime it's in sd it looks pretty good um but it's definitely worth seeing not only is a great collection of filmmakers um like i mentioned godard varda renee um claude lelouch uh, Mm. chris marker um some of the names i don't really know um uh and it's a great document of just them this incredible creative uh uh what's what i'm looking for collaboration yeah uh anyway so Next, you have the the short from 1967. Yeah, Uncle Yanko. I love Uncle Yanko so much. Okay. It is. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, my goodness. It's on Criterion Channel. Um, There's a great collection, if you're not a streamer, um, called Varda in California, I think. Okay. And it has a lot of... She made a bunch of films in California. So it's all her California films. Um, They span a couple... It's the late 60s and the early 80s, so... 
they're not chronological. It's just literally geographical, all the films she made in California. And Uncle Yanko is this short, I think he's in Monterey, I want to say, or San Jose. It's somewhere in the sort of mid-central Bay Area-esque part of California. And it's literally her uncle. It's actually yeah. like her, like, uncle's cousin or something, but like yeah. vaguely her uncle, named Yanko, who lives on a houseboat. And um, she goes to visit him and makes this just delightful short about this hippie, you know, relative of hers who lives on a houseboat and just has a joie de vie that we all wish we had. And then um, there's all these beautiful shots of of people holding things that say Viva Varda um, throughout it. So if you ever see that, like screenshots of Viva Varda, you know, there's like a woman with it in her hair and there's a guy with it in his mouth and things like that. That's from this short. And it's just one of those ones that you're like, I wish I could be as chill as Yonko. Like, <laughs> he's he's got it figured out. He's like, he says something about, like, I should be saving money, but I don't know what to save it for or something like that. He's got all these, like, witticisms where you're like, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. And it just makes you want to move on a houseboat and, like, not pay anybody any bill. You know, you're not pay your bills and yeah. fall off the grid. And <laughs> makes it look like a really good life. Um. Next up is Black Panthers, which I'm uh, sad to say I haven't seen. Black Panthers looks... also on the Agnes in California yeah. set. It's it's a great look at the um, Black Panther Party in Oakland, and particular uh, is it Huey um, Huey Long, um, right? Huey, no, Huey um, Lewis, Newton. Huey, Huey Newton. So yeah. I had so many Hueys in Huey my head. Lewis is in the news. <laughs> yes. Huey Long is Louisiana. All the Kingsmen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry, wrong. So many Hueys. Yeah. Who knew? Um, it's it's good and it's it's very angry and very um anti you know like american establishment um she's very pro for the black panther party but it it humanizes them in a way that um a lot of media at the time didn't you know a lot of media was very demonizing of of like their violence and they didn't actually investigate like why they were violent or the things they did for their communities because of police brutality and so looking at it now with like 2019 eyes it's it's very forward-thinking and really shows a, a broader like sort of like um how that Jackie movie got to show the Kennedys in a very different way because a Spanish filmmaker made it and he didn't right. like buy into like Chilean. Yeah. Chilean, yeah. the, um, American sort of view of what the Kennedys are. And he was like, I'm doing it differently. It's sort yeah. of the same thing where it takes that distance, um, to showcase it without a lot, a lot of baggage. Yeah. I, that was definitely one of the ones that, you know, in looking at what I needed to see, that was one that came up a lot that I'm uh, sad. I didn't, didn't get to, I definitely didn't get to enough shorts. I pretty much only saw the three shorts that are collected in, uh, a movie that was released in 2004, uh, called Cinevarda photo. Anyway. Um, so now we're going to get to another one of my favorite of her narrative, I guess, nonfiction films, although I don't even know what to call, yeah. uh, 1969's lion's love and lies. This one might be my favorite. It's so Just much fun. Period. It's so good. Uh, yeah. It, it's, um, I guess to the extent that it's about anything, um, the two, uh, guys who wrote hair, right? Yeah. Uh, Jerome Ra- Ragni, Ragni and James Rado. And then model actors, Viva, Go to go to Los Angeles to ostensibly be in a movie directed by Shirley Clark, who's playing herself. Yep. And they just like sort of hang out at this house in like the and do drugs the the hills and they do drugs. Yeah. And they float in a pool. They float in the pool. They 
try to adopt kids and yeah. then give them like downers so they'll they, go to sleep because they they're annoyed with the kids. They order a lot of food. Yeah. Uh, they watch a Ronald Coleman movie on TV at one point. That was fun. Yeah. Wait, what was the movie? It's uh, Lost Horizon, I think. Because okay. oh, I was watching, yeah. when I watched that one, Ronald Coleman was star of the month on TCM. So I've been watching a ton of Ronald Coleman. Then I watched this Varda, Varda and there was Coleman and I was like, my <laughs> worlds are colliding. <laughs> uh, yeah. Shirley Clark is great as herself. Um, she seems equally angry as yeah. Varda in, in like a really great way. Um, I think it, it really shows the frustration of Hollywood because mm-hmm. it's one of her California films. Yeah. Um, it's on that California set and you can see why someone like Varda and someone like Clark work outside the system. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Definitely. The, but this one feels less, less angry and more mocking. Like the, the, it keeps cutting back to the producers yeah. talking or the executives talking about, I guess they're talking about Shirley Clark's movie, but they're really, you know, clearly informed by her experiences trying to make money, make movies with American money. Um, and it feels less angry at them and just like, they're just figures of ridicule. Yeah. Um, but it also has a great reverence for, or I don't know if it's a great reverence, um, a reverence, whether it's ironic or not, uh, for, the like dream machine of Hollywood uh-huh. and it makes Hollywood Boulevard look way more beautiful than it has ever looked. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's gorgeous. They do, they shoot the stars and then they shoot, they have like montage or not. Mon- yeah. Is it montage is what I'm thinking of where they collage. There we go. Yeah. Like a collage style with all the different, um, starlets and flowers and hearts and all kinds of stuff. And it just yeah. makes you go like you understand the draw of this, Hollywood that really was always terrible. Yeah. Um, but it still makes fun of it because I love, there's the part that's the, yeah, they go to a coffee shop on the sunset strip, um, which made me think of the killing of a Chinese bookie, um, which is a much seedier look at the exact same, yeah, <laughs> thing, yeah. Uh, same area. But then one of the, one of the hair guys, I watched the whole movie. I could not tell you which one's drawn, which one's yeah. James, uh, but one of them, like, there's a little tiny patch of grass between like with a stop sign on it between the sidewalk and the street. And he's like the beautiful, like earth of, yeah. of Hollywood. He's like pulling up this, yeah. this grass sort of jo- like joking about how everything, you know, there's no, there's no nature around them, but then they go up into the hills and there's uh, plenty of nature. It's also, I, I, I don't know if this is true. Just, it's just occurring to me. Is this her only non-documentary that's in English? Um, did she make another, I, I never part, saw a documentary. I think part of documenter is in, yeah, in I don't, English. I, that's a, that's a yeah. I didn't see that. I think one. it's a mixture cause it's okay. a French woman living. I it's been like two years since I watched it, but it's a French woman living yeah. in LA and I think it goes back and forth. Um, but we um, even get Varda speaking English in Lion's Love because there's a great scene where she's trying, it's within the movie, Shirley Clark's character is supposed to be attempting suicide. Yes. And, then it sort of breaks the fourth wall and she doesn't want to do it. And Anya Svarta like has an argument with Shirley Clark about doing the scene and then acts it out. So she's all, that's all, uh, all in, in English uh, as well. Um, the movie's so much fun. It's so funny. And the, um, bookstore featured in it, Larry Edmonds is yes. still open. If you live in LA or you're visiting LA, you can still go there and you can still buy. Last time I went there, I bought a bunch of Joseph Cotton prints. So you I'm can glad, still I'm, buy prints there. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Cause yeah. Larry Edmonds is still open at the time. This and movie they'll, was shot. they'll ship. So I'm just going to plug for them real quick. If you were Please. traveling and you accidentally spend too much money, which happens, they will ship yeah. for you. 
um, at the time this movie was shot and certainly in the decades before that stretch of Hollywood Boulevard, which is now like touristy central was, uh, full of bookstores, bookstores mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, and Frank and Moose and Frank's was a writer's hangout and all that stuff. And Larry Edmonds is essentially the only one left. When I first moved here in 2005, um, I think it was, I think it was called Cherokee books. It was mm-hmm. Alabama Cherokee, yeah. uh, which a two story one was still, was still there, um, but that's it's long all touristy since stuff in wig shops now. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah gastro pubs. Uh, yeah, um, and and the worst pie place. Like, um, hopefully they won't like sue us for this, but don't go to Pie Hole if you're looking for pie. Just don't do it. Yeah. It's not good. It's like it's it's like calling McDonald's a good burger place unless you really like McDonald's. But McDonald's is like McDonald's. Yeah, it's it's not McDonald's, a burger. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's what these pies are. They're not real pie. Yeah, I'm there's not a much, big pie guy. There's I am very very much a pie person, and I'm just really mad that this like people think this is good pie. Well, I love this detail. <laughs> I love this digression because you used to live in North Hollywood, which is where I live. Yes. And there's Republic of Republic pie of pie is the best pie. It's so good. All right. So I actually tweeted maybe a year ago. I was just thinking about that pie and how much I love it. And I was like, guys, if you could only eat one thing and the world's about to end, what would it be? And you can go anywhere. And then people <laughs> asked me like my answer. And I was like, it's clearly Republic of pie and it's their chocolate cream, banana cream. And it's so good. Well, I'm glad we had that so. that digression. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, a big part of the fun of 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 Lions Love um, for me was because I am a I love Los Angeles. I, I love seeing seeing Los Angeles at different eras, and so there's a all lot. of her all of her California films are such yeah. beautiful like time capsules for an, an LA that's not here anymore. Yeah, there's or um, with like lingering bits of it still here. There's a, uh, yeah, mo- I, uh, most of Lion's Love does take place in a house in the hills, so you don't see that much of the down on the streets. So, but like you said, there is a great Sunset Strip part. It reminds me of, uh, there's a documentary from this era that is, I don't think is very good, about Dennis Hopper called The American Dreamer. Mm. That, like I said, I don't think that it's very good. I think it's a little bit too, like, hero worshipy of Dennis Hopper at the time, um, mythologizing. But as far as, seeing late 60s uh los angeles there's so much great stuff oh, in, in that in that movie um yeah lions love and lies i really it was one that i hadn't heard much about um and so it really took me by surprise um a lot of her work is is funny um yeah i think she has a great sense of humor yeah but again i i feel like that comes across more in her documentaries more often yes um uh, and so this was, uh, yeah, a, a, a non-documented uh, narrative fictional featured film that, uh, I laughed at a lot, laughed yes. out loud. Um, I haven't seen women reply. I'm missing literally the entire seventies. Oh, okay. So that's, so, oh, so the, <laughs> yeah, well, I actually I, own, I pre-ordered and it came right away. One sings and the other doesn't. And it's on criterion channel. I still haven't watched it yet. Yeah. I feel terrible. I should have watched it before we recorded. And then literally this afternoon I was at, I was at work and thinking, Oh, <laughs> I should have watched that last night. Um, well, um, we'll get to that one in a second. First, yeah. I want to talk about one of my, I keep saying these are all, I love all of these. They're movies, all good. It's fine. But one of my absolute favorites. favorites is 1976's Daguerreotype. 
daguerreotypes. Um, it is not a movie about actual daguerreotypes. Uh, the street that she lived on for her, pretty much her entire like adult life was the Rue Daguerre. Mm-hmm. And so daguerreotype is basically, it's just a documentary about her neighbors. Basically oh. just. So it probably ties nicely with Diary of a Pregnant Woman uh, then, because that was also okay. about her neighborhood. Um, yeah. yeah. I, uh, and so you'll, well, you'll probably see some of the, um, same locations. Cause that's something we'll get to, uh, in a, in a little bit, um, that, uh, but yeah, so there's just, it's basically just interviews with the, mostly the shop owners along the street. There's like an antique shop. There's like a, like a, I don't know what you'd, uh, call it. Um, I would say a convenience store, a bodega. I'm not sure what they call it in, in Paris, but just a, a place where people can go to get like batteries or eyeglasses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's a, that's a couple where the, um, the, the, the wife of the, sorry, there's a cat meowing out the, outside the door. I'm not sure if the mic picked that up. Um, the couple who runs that shop, the wife, uh, appears to be suffering from some sort of early onset dementia or, or something. Um, and then you've got like the, the baker who will actually show up again in, in later movies. And then you've got this sort of, the movie's not really, it doesn't follow any chronology because it cuts back and forth between these pictures of the portraits, not actual portraits, but you know, um, sections just watching the like butcher do his job or whatever. Mm. And people come up and then there's this magic show that apparently pretty much all of the people in the movie went to this magic show. So it keeps cutting back to this magician, like in this sort of small, like, like back room of a restaurant doing tricks and like, asking for volunteers and so you'll see like oh that's the guy we just saw shopping for cheese and now he's (laughs) like being put under hypnosis or whatever like um the movie uh, it's it just feels like a part of it feels like she felt the urge to make a film and didn't want to go too far from home. Like she literally has yeah. like an ex- for her like equipment. She has like an extension cord oh, I love coming that. out of the gate of her home that she like walks down the street and her daughter uh, is, is, is helping her. Uh, but it's also just when I think the term that I keep using humanist, this is the, this is the first example I would hold up as a movie that is just absolutely interested in other people with zero judgment whatsoever. That's what I love about so many. I mean, there's another one of her documentaries later, her later documentaries. It's just all just how many interesting people can she talk to? And everyone's interesting, I think to her. So it's just really just how many people can she talk to? Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. Yeah. And then, yeah, you, uh, I did get a chance to watch the new criterion Blu-ray of one sings. The other doesn't, you can read my review of it at battleship Um, very top, topical very topical but because um, I, I i didn't really know going in that it is a movie that is so much about abortion especially the first half is about uh, uh, abortion and abortion rights um and then the second half is about i think still in a way about abortion it's still very much about pregnancy and and childbirth and motherhood and about the 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 fact that that's a, a choice that some people made you know just because the abortion just because there are no abortions in the movie after the halfway point doesn't mean the movie stops being about the choice uh, to be pregnant or yes, not yes yeah. to be a mother or not or to raise a child or not yeah um yeah i'm really i'm really looking forward to it i i've been i think i told you this earlier i've been sick for like a month and yeah. i got so behind on all my watching i yeah. have only really had like the energy to watch 
soapy Spanish television. So that's where my brain has been. Um, so the, the plot of the movie, uh, just real quick is you've got, um, it starts in 1962 and you've got two, um, young women, one, a young mother, the other, a high school student, um, and who are, who are friends. And, uh, the young mother gets already has two children. Her husband is, uh, is out of, out of work or struggling, uh, artist, I think of some sort gets pregnant again and wants to have an abortion, which is not easily done in 1962 in, in Paris. And so the other girl helps her, uh, helps her out. Um, and it sort of forms a bond, even though they sort of lose touch. The movie jumps 10 years to 1972 where Palm, uh, or Pauline, her nickname is Palm, um, is now has, you know, graduated high school, left home and is now a sort of, uh, activist singer songwriter who, mm. who, who plays these sort of pro-choice anthems at rallies on the street. And then they run into each other again. And then it, the movie, they become friends, uh, lifelong friends, even though Palm goes and lives in Iran for a while. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a movie that is, yeah. Like I, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, abortion because like you said, that's very much, uh, in, in the news lately, but it is also a movie about, I think the nature of female friendships, if you weren't mm-hmm. saying that as a man, because I don't yeah. know, but it feels to me like, um, that, 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 that a female friendship because of the sort of the, the injustice and the regulations of the body, mm-hmm. bodies and the, and the lack of, uh, relative lack of opportunity and all these things that, that women go through that their friendships are maybe yeah. stronger, closer to like a relationship than, than a man might have. Friends. I haven't seen the film yet, but I will say, um, on the terms of female friendship, I, um, was watching Jane, the Virgin, the CW TV show. Yeah. And, um, they, the characters in the early on, there were these two women and they were, you know, opposed to each other because they both liked the same guy. And then six years later, now they're best friends. Uh-huh. And, um, they were discussing with the guy cause they're all friends. Um, how they both wanted Petra is like the one that was the, you know, like the villain at the beginning uh-huh. in the first season. Um, but now they're all friends. And he's trying to say that the, you know, why he knows more about her and Jane's trying to say she knows more about her. And then Jane's like, do you know, we cycled together and, you know, cause their cycles are synced <laughs> yeah. up and he, you know, he can't, he has nothing else to say about that. It's like, yeah, the yeah. men can't, men and women can't be close in that way. Like two women, they get so close that they can start, you know, cycling together because yeah. that's just how female bodies work. Um, that was a really weird way to get to that, but, um, it literally just, I watched that last night. So, um, I think that's part of why there are with films by women about women, there are little things like that that are only really knowable if you're a woman Uh, specifically, uh, or, you know, to be fair, um, if you have in this case, an ovary, because you may be trans and have an ovary, but it's a similar, um, it's, it's a biological thing that is Uh, very, um, specific. Uh, I wasn't, I was about to say something about that. I'll have to come back to, to it was about Jane the Virgin, oh, right? No, no I'm joking. Uh, about, I mean, that's a, what <laughs> you a just show. what you just talked about is a is a, a a good demonstration of why things like the Bechdel test are not. It's not superficial, you know. It's yeah. not like the Bechdel test isn't just like okay, check the mark because I, you know, as a screenwriter, I wrote one scene where they these two characters talk about the, their genes or whatever. Yeah. Um, like it, it means something deeper than that. Um, because I do think that, and I'm bringing my own experience as a person who 
is um, I don't know hesitant to trust and have good friendships with people but I've always <laughs> noticed in my life with girlfriends that like the like the, the girlfriends that I've had and now my, my wife they'll have friends where I'm a part of me is like oh you're not just in a relationship with me you have other like serious relationships that I don't have like I can like have a falling out with a friend and then like two days later we're fine or maybe we just don't talk for years and like it's it's different than the emotional pull that I witness I think in my uh past girlfriends and my wife and and their their close female friends it's they're these women seem more invested in one another than oh, yeah. I am in oh, my yeah. male friends. I would, I would 100% <laughs> okay. say that that's an accurate depiction um, of female friendship. Okay. So I skipped over a short film called the pleasure of love in Iran because there's a section of one sings the other doesn't that has a, its own title card and is called the pleasure of love in Iran. Oh. But I don't know if the short film version of that is literally just lifted that out section? of the film or if it's an expanded version of what's in the film. Is it on the, uh, is it on the, is it like a special feature on one things? Um, Criterion. yeah, I believe it. I Criterion have, does that sometimes. Check my, uh, I haven't watched it yet. So my Blu-ray I gotta, uh, review. I got to get watching. Uh, and then we, okay, we're getting to the eighties. So I'm assuming you're joining us again here. From uh, Murmurs. Murmurs, which is the last the, one that I watched. The absolute. Like a week ago. The absolute greatest. I love it. Again, a time capsule of a bygone LA um, it's about all of the wall art. It's such a Varda topic because, you know, she was just walking around, <laughs> noticed all this art and was like, what's the deal with this? And it's the kind of stuff that your your average person kind of takes for granted mm-hmm. or I think maybe we notice a little bit more now because we're all trying to like put it on Instagram. But like <laughs> back in the day, your average person's just walking and they don't necessarily see all the wall art. And um, she managed to capture all this just beautiful, mostly um you know, specific to certain neighborhoods that had certain demographics in them, cultural. I was going to bring um, that up because the, the things that I had said, the accusations I had leveled her before about being condescending are certainly not present in Mirror yeah. This is a movie that is not just like, oh, look at this Chicano art. It's let's talk to all these Chicano people yeah. and what I, this means. I love the like, one about the, the husband and wife painting mm-hmm. like painted on the walls and how that ended like, yeah. <laughs> spoilers there but um <laughs> yeah. it's just lovely and sad and then like venice with where she talks to this, this skateboarders or rollerbladers or something yeah um yeah it's just beautiful and venice doesn't look like that anymore either which is it's, it's so much a bummer the, uh, yeah i i felt as much as i loved mirrors i felt myself getting like feeling this twinge of very deep sadness that so much of what she's showing is is not there anymore which is not to say that there's still great muralists working today um all over los angeles you can see uh wall art and murals in a lot of places but it's also sad to realize um that a lot of it is a lot of it has been either the buildings knocked down or someone built a building right up against it or Mm -hmm. they just power washed it um you know, there's there the the one part that I uh, that I loved the uh, is it called Ramona Gardens the, yeah. the neighborhood where there was every building it was like a pro- neighborhood wide project they had something like seventy seven I think murals yeah. or, or something like that, that and like those aren't astonishing uh, yeah because that you know when with in shortly after this movie would have taken place with like the crack epidemic and, and, and things like that, that neighborhood became, uh, known as sort of like a drug market and, and yeah. a lot of that stuff got neglected and is gone now. It's, uh, 
yeah, really sad. I watched this one right around the same time that I watched Stations of the Elevated, which is about like graffiti art in New York. Okay. Um, but right around the similar time, and it had a similar feel to it where you're like really glad someone photographed all of it and specifically that they photographed it with a motion camera so you really get to capture um the vibrancy of that art in the neighborhood um but both new york and la have changed so much in the like 40 years since both these films were made that you're like "Mm." um but thankfully you know we're starting sometimes to get new civic you know funds to like bring art back into neighborhoods so hopefully um yeah, uh, like I said, there's yeah. Check out. I mean, there's there are great muralists uh, working working today, uh, and not all just for Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like those angel wings things. Um, like there's more. Oh right, yeah. There's that more than just that sort of thing. Um, another thing. Uh, uh, talking about again, I'm going to repeat myself, but that's the nature of these profile episodes about things sort of repeating themselves within her work. There's a part where she, uh, you know, I mentioned liking the opening titles of the Banur earlier, mm-hmm. and there's a part in Murmurs where she films a sort of street performance art in front of a mural. Do you know this? Yeah. And the editing is very similar to the beginning of the Banur's where it sort of goes, it repeats actions and then will suddenly yeah. jump because like, there's a part where a guy, as part of his performance art, like climbs out of the second story window on a sheet. And so you see him sort of like up and down, up and down, up and down. And then suddenly the next cut, he's halfway down the wall. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very similar sort of, uh, method to the way that the opening titles of Lebanon, uh, unfold. Um, there's a, there's a quote, um, I think it's towards the end of the film where you can see that she understood that she was recording something that's not, um, going to last forever and that maybe her film will help it last forever. That's about sort of the nature of time destroying everything mm-hmm. that is both like super amazing, but also super depressing. And you're like, thanks. Yeah. Like you show us this, all this beauty and then you're like, nothing lasts. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But like, then, oh. I mean, to look forward to faces places, you, I mean, obviously murals and yeah. wall art are a big part of that, but also there's the, there's the big, thing in faces places that literally only lasts overnight. Like even that line gets washed away by the tide almost immediately. And there's maybe she does. I'm sure she, I'm certain she was thinking about those murals when she made that, uh, that part of faces places. I would agree with that. Okay. So it sounds like you've seen documentor. Yeah. So it's, she was making, I think she was scouting documentary when she made mirror mirrors because they, they're made at the same time. Yeah. Um, and you'll see some stuff that shows up in both. Um, just because she was shooting one and then was like, I'm making this documentary at the same time. Um, and it's about a single, it's about a single mother sort of dealing with, um, the pressures of like raising a child and Mm -hmm. trying to be artistically fulfilled and not go back to France and what it's like to be an immigrant. And, um, I distinctly remember the child being, really good in it like he's one of those one of those child actors that um the role could have been really bratty and mm-hmm. somehow instead you you just feel sort of um wait is it her son Matthew to me i think it's yeah i think it actually is his son their son okay. because she cast him again in yeah in Master Master. Master. or the petite more however you call it we'll get to that one um but it's a lot of um the way that women rely on other women shows up a lot in this film um, and helping like with babysitting or other things and mm-hmm. it's just beautiful sort of 
what's the word I'm looking for? Like lonely. It's a very lonely film. Um, because the bulk that she has in her life is just her and this son and this life she's trying to like eke out for herself. Yeah. While doing her work and it's yeah. one of the least funny ones, honestly. Yeah. It's not as like bleak as Vagabond, but it's it's getting yes, there. We're gonna it's getting get to there. Vagabond. Um, but the thing I want to stop and call out is how often, and I feel like, eh, I'm not sure uh, how often her sh- films are very short. Yeah. Because Documentor is 65 minutes. I think there's a, I feel like there's a, like a boyfriend somewhere in there too. Okay. But it's, I just remember, mostly remember the part with the sun being like the best bits of the film. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, sorry. So, um, I, I like, uh, that she makes short movies that made, uh, cramming them, uh, a, a lot easier. And I wish we, uh, had more people making, uh, 65 minute art films you know, all the time. 65, 78 minutes, 78 yeah. minutes is usually a really good. Yeah. I think time. is 70. Well, it's 1976. It is 80 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that. Okay. So I've got a jump to Vagabond. That's here. where I'm at. Yeah. Okay. Too. And this one, uh, I'm also going to let, you talk about it because it sounded like you had some things to say. Oh, I love it. But uh, I will uh, I will interject that um, it's uh, yeah, I think you, well, I can't remember what the word you used. Bleak? Bleak. It, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's from, unrelentingly bleak. Yeah, to go from seeing so many of her films that celebrate humanity yeah. to this movie that is like, God, pretty much everyone in this movie mm. is a like self-serving self-delusional cruel greedy shit yeah except the lead who can see it all and see uh-huh. and she it's, it's sort of i feel like kind of the opposite of most of varda where varda is trying to find the the good things about people and the good things about humanity and this is like the side of varda that sees like can't see the good anymore and, and just sees everyone's bullshit uh-huh. and this character is so tired of all this bullshit and she doesn't want it. it's very anti-reaganism like you know anti-global economy neoliberalism and all of that like it is it is a this character does not want to be part of like a capitalist system she doesn't want to be a part of serving for yourself but then she also like ends up at one point in a commune and that doesn't really work out for her either either, because she's uh, even the commune isn't like as idyllic as it seems like it should be um but it's i think it's a commentary on how like you you have to figure out how to be part of the system because if you're not you know spoiler alert I mean, it's not much of a spoiler. The movie starts with her dead body. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. You freeze to death in a ditch. Like, she literally cannot, in every attempt at trying to find true independence, does not work out because at some point she has to rely on somebody else. And in her view, no one is reliable other than herself. Yeah. And it's, that's a bleak portrait. Yeah. Um, Um, Which ties nicely later in a less bleak way to gleaners. We'll get there. Um, like if only she could have been a gleaner, you know? Yes. I mean, and there, there, are th- <laughs> there are things, you know, that, 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 that commune, when you see the guy sort of like clipping, like, uh, I had to remind myself that this was before gleaners because yeah. it's uh, some of the same sort of locations and, yeah. and movements. And, um, and, uh, a couple of things I want to say about 
Vagabond. Well, I hadn't, um, feels like it's been a few minutes since we mentioned that, uh, uh, her, her feminist outlook specifically, but there's so often that we see, we, cause the way that movie is structured and I love, I love the movie structure. It's that it's, yeah, starts with this, uh, the young woman's dead body being found. And then we have interview, we have like flashbacks to her the last few weeks of her life and then interviews with the people who knew her. And there are times she'll ha- she'll like spend time with a man for a while. And then we see him interviewed and the way that he talks about her is not what we just experienced yeah. is, is more, more yeah. judgy, you know, um, to yeah, more, more, you know, slut shaming in some ways or, or whatever. Um, uh, that was definitely part of the negativity that I felt. Um, but I also wanted to point out the, the lead actress is Sandrine Bonaire, um, mm-hmm. who is great, a great actor. I always think of her first from the, uh, Patrice Lecomte film, Monsieur Hire, and I've never known it's spelled H I R E. I'm not sure how you spell that. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, basically a guy who, uh, is a creep who peeps on his neighbor and she plays the neighbor. The neighbor and, being uh, on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a really great, um, really, uh, really depressing movie. Um, and so I know her from that. She was she's been in she's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, but I mentioned structure, and I, I will fully admit that what I'm about to say I've lifted wholly from the um, uh, what's what I'm looking for. Not the epitaph. What do you call it when uh, when, when a newspaper publishes a obituary? This sort of the obituary type of uh, look at Agnes Varda's career that Film Comment posted shortly after she died. Um, that uh, we ha- well, we, ha- we haven't talked much about her relationship to genre, except we talked about it in terms of it's the lack of one when you were talking about how Godard and Truffaut were much more uh, responsive to American films. But there are genre, you know, I, I don't think that the that uh, Lebanon works without um, uh, um, some awareness of what melodrama and yeah. and romance movies are like one sings the other doesn't is, is a musical in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what film comment pointed out, um, and I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote the, the article was that, um, vagabond is, it's all the things we've just said. It's the, the, this, this, uh, uh, this examination of all, you know, the, economy and feminism and all of these things, but it's also a murder mystery or a mystery. She's not actually murdered and it's a road movie yeah. at the same time. And, um, I hadn't thought to place the movie within or to really to place any of her movies within a genre context. And I'm glad I read that film comment, uh, article to make me think of it. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on her. Yeah. To the genre. It's definitely. It definitely hits road movie and, and fits nicely with a lot of what, uh, Vin Benders was doing at that time with his road trilogy. Um, it's about a decade after the road trilogy, but, um, vendors did a bunch of road movies outside of the road trilogy also where he looked at outsider characters and how the road is the only place where they mm-hmm. like fit, but they don't actually fit in yeah. any of the places on the road either. And the road's not really a place to be And like, Paris, Texas does this a lot as well. Um, and it's that there were a lot of, I think, filmmakers at that time trying to, you know, take the road movie and make it even more existential than it's like 60s uh-huh. or counterparts. 
um, because you had something like, I mean, well, even easy rider like ends with like the road is not the great, not a great place to be. Um, I think most road movies should end in death to be honest. Like it's not right. It's not proper. Like you you can't take off on the road. Like it's that whole, it takes it all the way back to El Dorado, right? Like the whole search for El Dorado. Like there is no El Dorado. That's the whole point. And you die. And that's kind of what road movies do. But do you see Except in this case, El Dorado is independence from everybody as opposed to, you know, monetary. So do, would you characterize, and I can't remember, I'm trying to remember, um, Mona is her name. Yeah. Uh, would you characterize her as, cause you mentioned an El Dorado thing. Would you characterize her as running towards something? No, or running no, away which from is it? why it's, it's, um, well, I mean, yes, in that I think she's running towards what she thinks she wants, which is complete independence mm-hmm. and reliance from anybody. Um, but what you learn is that that's a, like El Dorado, an impossible right. ideal that's not doable. Um, at least not in the way that she was trying to do it. She didn't have enough skills, I think, to, if you truly want to be like independent, you have to have self-sufficient skills and she didn't yeah. pick up enough, I think, to... Yeah. You know, um, but she's certainly self sufficient in some ways. I, one of the big laughs of the movie is when she's she comes out of a cafe with another hitchhiker, like yeah. a, a young man, and they're like having a good time. She's talking about the cafe, it was really cute in there. And then she like flags down a ride and she's like, Can you give us a ride? And he's like, I can only take you, I can only have room for one of you. And she just like leaves, just yeah. mid conversation, <laughs> just like, All right, bye, and leaves the guy she was just talking with. Uh, there's some sufficients there. Some yeah. Cold efficients, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. Do uh, I, my next one is Kung Fu master yep. or the petite Amour. Yep. Uh, I don't know why I saw it. Uh, this is another one like murmurs and documentor. This Kung Fu master is paired with a documentary. Yes. Um, in fact, that's how I saw it back years ago when, uh, Sinalicious picks, which I don't think exists anymore. Yeah. Uh, put them out, put out both of these on one disc. And I guess I, I watched the documentary first. IMDb has, I think that's how I watched them too. Yeah. Okay. Actually. Let's talk about the documentary first. I, I uh, really love this documentary. Me too. It's called, uh, Jane B par Agnes V and it's a documentary it's ostensibly about yeah, it's like a, a birthday tribute to her about yeah. her life, and it lets her play all these roles that because she's so beautiful and so famous, she never gets to play. So, like my favorite sequence is when she gets to be um, a slapstick comic pie fight sequence. Yes, the um, so funny the Laurel and Hardy yeah. sequence, which I, I so good uh, immediately recognized. I saw that first, and in in daguerreotypes when she inter- when she interviews the baker in his mm. bakery i immediately recognized it's the same location oh there you go uh as where the the laurel and hardy is that part i love i love yeah. all of her her really honest discussion about aging and what aging it ties in again to cleo where what aging means mm. to someone who's famous for their beauty in a world that hates aging yeah and what even though you're still like she's still the most beautiful friggin person out there she's not 21 anymore right and that's messing with her self-worth and um i just love how varda made this film to really prop her up and say like no you're amazing and we're gonna make a film about how amazing you are yeah and what do you want to do let's do it yeah it it definitely feels that um uh to go back to a term i kept using earlier on on the fly it it definitely feels like 
she and Jane Birkin didn't like set out with like a much of a scheme. They just like had conversations, filmed those conversations and then sort of like followed their inspirations based on, yeah. on those following them so far is to make a whole narrative movie, uh, together, uh, which is Kung Fu master. Um, uh, I don't know. Do you, but I don't want to move on. And leave you no, you yeah. I just, I just want to say if you can find it, like it is very much worth watching. It's delightful and lovely and ties in again to like female friendships. Like yeah. they're clearly great friends and, um, I wish I could give like a gift of a movie about like my best friend. Like yeah. that'd be, that'd be fun. Yeah. I feel very lucky to have that Blu-ray, uh, from Cinelicious Picks. We, we um, had it at one point on Filmstruck. That's how I watched them. Yeah. So somebody has the streaming rights to them. I just don't know who, what library that ended up in. Is it not on Canopy? Um, it may be. It might be on Canopy. Yeah. Um, I did watch some of this stuff on Canopy. Um, and so then Kung Fu Master, uh, 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 again, if you're following along on IMDb, uh, it has it listed as Le Petit Amour, but, um, which is kind of a clever title for what the movie is about, yes. <laughs> which is um, uh, some scandalous shit. Yeah, I, you know, there's a whole bunch of French movies about older people with teenagers that make me really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, like Pauline at the Beach would go on here. I fucking hate Pauline at the Beach. I'm sorry, I just swore. Oh, I you're really to swear okay. I really, really hate Pauline at the Beach, and I had to watch it in college, and it was just yeah. I will never like that movie. Um, Did you see there was a recently restored movie um, by Bertrand Blier called Get Out Your Handkerchiefs? No, is so, it also like this genre the, of? By the end, it, 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 I didn't see it coming. <sighs> the last sort of half hour or so gets real. Yeah, uh, older woman, young boy. Yeah, uh, it's, I don't like it. And I mean, I'd feel a little less icky if it, they were like 16, 17. I feel like you're getting mm-hmm. closer to like, you know, it's fine. But in these movies, they're always like 13 or 14. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, I'm, I'm certain that's the point though, right? It's supposed I, to be, I guess upsetting. I, I don't or maybe know. the French are looking okay, at us and being I'm telling like, you, get when, over it. when I saw Pauline at the beach, my teacher was French. And when we brought up that, we thought it made us, we thought it was icky. Yeah. He was like, mm. like he dismissed it. Yeah. Like, this is what he prudish Americans. And I'm like, she's 13. Yeah. <laughs> He's like 45. Does so, it, I mean, um, given, you know, gender imbalance in the world, does it, the fact that it's an older woman and no, a younger boy doesn't, it doesn't make it any less gross to me. I just, I still <laughs> yeah. find it like, and again, it's that like, th- like 13, you might as well still be 12. Uh-huh. Whereas eh, 16, 17, you're getting closer. And in a lot of places like, um, age of consent is 16. So, but that's a whole nother like political oh, kettle of fish. We don't need to go down, yeah. but like, you, I feel like you're getting closer to like emotional maturity the closer you right. get to being like 20 even, but honestly no one hits emotional inter- maturity till they're like 30 anyways. So, so does it make it even um, creepier that in Kung Fu master, the young boy is it's played by her, her son, son. Agnes for his son. It's no, it just stays creepy. And the, uh, I mean, the other thing for me, just on a personal note, like, I was never even as a kid attracted to like kids. Like I was yeah. never like I was the age <laughs> where I should have found like Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. or Jonathan Taylor Thomas, you know, hot or whatever. And I was always like the kid who liked the older person. So I don't know. So that all ties yeah. in weirdly because like I liked 35 year old age people <laughs> when I was like 13. So now I guess I can see like I can see how it could happen. Yeah. I think I but had I'm glad, but I'm glad and, but I, but I'm glad that it never happened to me, I guess a, but right. B, um, 
from the other point of view, I'm glad if a 35 year old had come on to 13 year old me, the power dynamics there is just awful. And I'm, you know, I don't like that. But also, even if I were 13, I wouldn't find 13 year olds attractive. So when a 35 year old finds a 13 year old attractive, I'm like, what the fuck? I just, it's gross. So uh, there you go. So uh, maturity. Take, That's you don't how I enjoy feel. Kung Fu Master? No, then? I didn't like it. Yeah. And I really I, wanted to like it because I liked the Jane Birkin doc so much and I like Birkin, but I, I couldn't. Think it's, it's very just, well acted. I just uh, couldn't get past the age thing. It's just kind of creepy. Um, yeah. So it's. Um, but again, it's very well acted by Jane Brooklyn, by Matthew Demi, who is the same young boy from. Yeah. Uh, and the, yeah, the title, the title comes from a video game, which I played as a as a yeah. kid. I had the Nintendo version. And of I Kung do, I do like the way it's shot. I love the um, shots in the in the like is a pizza parlor video game place, right? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. That whole world building is is lovely. I just couldn't get past. Um, feeling uncomfortable, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I haven't watched one. I'm pretty sure Jane Birkin's home in the movie is Agnes Varda's home, right? With oh. that, that courtyard. That yeah. We oh, keep yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and then also Jane Birkin's daughter is played by a young Charlotte Gainsbourg. Her actual daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so speaking that's, of someone who takes risks in her filmmaking. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think I liked it more than you, but I have the same, obviously the same, uh, uh, it's a it's a whole it. it's a whole genre. You know, um, I didn't like Call Me by Your Name for many reasons, but it reminded me of Paulina the Beach. And then I found an interview, just like the aesthetics of it and the tone. And then I found an interview where the director said that that was a big inspiration, and I was like, uh. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if a film is inspired by one of these creepy French teenage tryst movies, I'm probably not going to like it. Did you see? Um, at, um, oh, you weren't at AFI Fest this year. No, you live here. I was not here. Have for you that. seen Maya? The um, mm. um, Mia Hansen Love. Movie? I don't like that director. Oh, I so like people, a lot of her movies. So people think that because I watch a lot of films by women, that I like all female directors. Sure, yeah. This is not the case. There are. I give most directors, male and female, two chances. Okay. Sometimes three. Call Me by Your Name was a third film, and I didn't like it. Um, so he's gone. But like, what are your two Mia Hansen love? Movies? Um, the two that I saw were Goodbye First Love okay. and shit. I don't remember what the other one was. Okay. One of her others that she did. Because here's the thing: and I didn't like Goodbye First I Love. Hated My second chance was Things to Come, and I thought the Things to Come was amazing. It might have been. Really been I don't know if it was that or was one. It Eden. I didn't see Eden. Um, Honestly, now I can't remember. Okay, but I, I did not. I did. I just. She's one that I'm like. I don't think I can align with. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's another French know. movie with a uh, May-December romance. She's she's a college age, not quite a... <laughs> it's a little better. It's a little better. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the 90s for me or the 70s for you? I have nothing. Um, the only 90s one that I saw was The World of Jacques Demy. Um, and I will say I missed uh, Jacques Denant, her 1991 film, when I first started my deep dive, was on movie, and I always forget yeah, same, that... Like, same. Same like, thing oh, happened shit. to me. Same thing happened to me. They ate it before yeah. I got to it. And I was like, yeah. oh, man. Uh, okay, so sorry. But, so sorry, the, world, you, the world of Jacques Demy, like, it's probably a really good um, survey of the films of Jacques Demy. However, I have only seen Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So it was a bit wasted on me because they're going through all these themes and, and stuff about his films from Bay of Angels all the way through, uh, I can't remember what his last one was, it was like from 1990, I think. Um, and I, 
had only seen one film. And so I was like, I probably should have waited till I watched his films to watch this, <laughs> but it was on Filmstruck and I don't know that it was available anywhere else or I thought it wasn't available anywhere else. And I figured I might as well watch it before it yeah. goes away, but I should have watched the Demi films when they were on Filmstruck, but I'm you know an idiot, so I didn't. Um, although I think they might be on Criterion Channel now, so yeah. I can maybe catch up. But I thought I would watch it because it was like the scarcity effect, you know what I mean? Um, so I think fans of Demi would probably quite like it. And she definitely talks a little bit about um, their relationship, both working and romantic. Um, but it's mostly really just to preserve his legacy as a filmmaker um so that's what i would recommend all right then we jump to 2000 and a strong contender for my favorite anya svarta film the gleaners and i oh so good uh, this is where it establishes svarta as not only the patron saint of cats but the patron saint of potatoes <laughs> yeah, that's right yes yeah there's a lot of potato stuff in here um if you, if you know, just google her and potatoes and you'll find so many photos of her either in potatoes dressed as a potato. Like there's so many Varda potato photos that are not photoshopped. It's literally her with potatoes. There's so many um, recommended. So the gleaning, gleaning refers, refers to, uh, I guess in, in France there are when the crops are picked once they've been picked, it is perfectly legal to come across, come around and pick up whatever was, Left behind by the yeah, machines. Yeah, without hard, hard left yeah. the machines, or in some cases by hands. You've got the one in the apple orchard where yeah. you've literally got the gleaners, like they have to stay like 50 yards behind. Waiting. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, good. And there's a similar thing with the, um, I can't remember what the, the fishermen, where there's like, as long as they're 10 yards, and no one can agree on what the law is. I yeah. Mean, that part. They're like, yeah, she interviews like five part. different people, and they're like, oh yeah, you have to be 50 yards away from the boat. And then someone's like, oh, it's 10 yards, or it's like, yeah, one it's, fifth. It feels yeah. very French. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, yeah, she just goes. It also feels very French that they won't, like, they'll keep this law. Like, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, and so you get, um, uh, it's, so yeah, I, I thought about, Vagabond a lot. I watched these in the right order, at least. I saw Vagabond <laughs> first. So I thought about Vagabond a lot because some of the people that, some of the gleaners that she yeah. interviews are these sort of self-sufficient, you the, know. The uh, one that, people. like, breaks my heart is that guy who clean, who gleans from the farmer's market or whatever, uh, yeah. and then he takes, like, the subway or something to go teach English to people, but oh, he has God. no money, and it's yeah. like his whole life is just helping immigrants learn not English, French, obviously. Immigrants learn the language, but then he like he works like sixteen hours a day, and then he gleans, and then he sleeps, and then he goes back to work, and it's just like his life sounds horrible, but also self like selfless, yeah, and horrible, yeah. And like I think about that all the time. Like whenever I'm on a bus, I'm just like, oh god, this guy. Yeah. Like, is he fine? I don't know. Yeah, but he does seem like someone who uh, I think has uh, is driven by a moral code that. Is something that I look up to. Yeah, and but no, I can never would, do. Can do. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, but mm. yeah, I think he he lives that way because I don't think he could allow himself to not. I don't think he could yeah. live it himself if he didn't. There's a, a similar. Like if you gave him a hundred thousand dollars. There's a similar away. sequence in, um, in a completely unrelated documentary called Keddy, the Turkish cat documentary. Oh, I didn't see that. Um, there's a story about um, it's like wild cats in in um, Istanbul, and there's a story about this man who was like going crazy in his job and just quit his job, um, and he spends his whole life feeding stray cats. 
um, he started feeding just a couple of stray cats mm-hmm. and now he, he has all these cats around his neighborhood and spends, you know, like two hours every day making sure all these cats are fed and that's his like life's purpose now, but he's like super poor now because he doesn't have a job and all he does is feed cats, mm-hmm. but he's fulfilled like spiritually. That sequence in that film yeah. reminded me of the guy in Gleaners. Yeah. Like very similar, you know, ways of calling falling off the grid, but not really yeah. and being selfless. And well, yeah, the, um, uh, a lot of the urban gleaners are definitely, I think a little more, um, can be a little more depressing because yes. the stuff, the places they're gleaning from are, you know, often trash cans. You know, there's that one guy who pulls a bunch of chickens out of the trash oh, and yeah. goes back to the home of the guy who lets him stay with him and they cook chicken uh, together. Um, whereas like obviously the, the rural gleaners, you can see that like, Oh, like you were saying, it's like a throwback to an old way of life. These old rules and laws and these people are living off of the, off of the, the land. Yeah, there's, a, I think there's also some condemnation of, the way that industrial farming produces so much waste, waste because yeah. there's the, like with the potatoes, some of those potatoes, they're not they're bad. Just dumping they're all just, those potatoes. Yeah, they're just, they've crazy. just decided like this one's too small or too weird a shape to sell in a grocery store. Yeah. So it just gets tossed out. Yeah. And, and this is a very, um, like this created a, a movement in French grocery stores where they, um, sell what I think they call them like ugly, ugly fruit uh-huh. now or something ugly veggies and it's like um they get their own section and they're a little cheaper <laughs> yeah um and they had to be segregated though. yeah but they're <laughs> they're, they're the them. ugly the ugly vegetables and it's a whole thing now where instead of wasting the ugly vegetables you just know you're buying an ugly vegetable yeah i would buy an ugly vegetable yeah you know it's like uh, heirloom tomatoes here in the United States. Like they don't look as as nice as like those, you know, perfectly round red tomatoes that we're used to. But they taste so much better. Taste so much better. Yeah. And they cost a lot more too. It's just like a yeah. Um, and speaking of uh, going back to North Hollywood uh, food, this is the Los Angeles chain, but Pitfire Pizza has been closed for invasions forever. Mm-hmm. But they have a seasonal heirloom tomato pizza when heirloom tomatoes are in season that I really love. I don't think Pitfire Pizza and that like it's not some like gourmet it doesn't deserve yeah. a Michelin star or whatever. But when that heirloom tomato pizza mm. is in season, uh, I'll always get it. I look forward to it. I love a good Definitely like so yellow tomato. Up. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're having pie and pizza. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I want to say, so I think I can't imagine another filmmaker besides one who is as completely open and guileless, uh, as Agnes Varda, Anya Varda, making a movie about people who live this way and then making the connection to, Oh, that's kind of like what I do with my camera and it not being obtuse or self-serving. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because she's not capable of, <laughs> of that. I don't think it doesn't, it doesn't feel like she's trying. She's not trying to say like, I understand their struggle and she doesn't come out and say, this is what I do with my camera. But yeah. when you see her, like she, uh, I can't remember. Does she travel to Tokyo? She goes, it she goes Tokyo. somewhere. It is Tokyo. I think it is Tokyo. And I think we are clearly supposed to make the connection that the shots that she's picking up, uh, on her, on her uh, trip abroad yeah. are like these gleaners picking up uh, what they can, what they, what they find. Um, but it's not self-serving. She's not trying to be, uh, she's not, she's not condescending uh, at all uh, in that. At yeah. Least not my- uh, yeah. I think she makes the connection between what filmmakers do and what mm-hmm. she does as an artist 
really well to not, I think she sees imagery similar to the way they see food. Not that like this is a stretch, but you know, like she needs to make film. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and that's what she does. That's her life's purpose and sustaining. And yeah. And, and if she doesn't capture, like with mirrors, if she didn't capture those, those um, works of art, who knows who would remember them? You know, and I think that's yeah. a very similar feel, and she she makes that connection really well in that film. I'm realizing I skipped a short. Oh no, which short? Uh, Ulysses, Ulysses, 1983. I don't think I've seen that one. Um, it's basically uh, when she was a photographer. If it's French, it's Ulysses. Ulysses. Yeah, that was the name of my French film teacher. His name was Ulysses Dutois. Okay, Ulysses. Yeah. Um, and so uh, basically, she took a a, a photograph of a naked man on a rocky beach with a boy. It's in Beaches of Agnes, um, Mm. which we'll get to, with a boy sitting on the beach next to him and a dead goat in the foreground. And she took that, I don't know, like 20, this is 1983, she took that like 20 uh, years before, 15, 20 years before. And the documentary is just about her revisiting the photo, interviewing the man and the now grown boy. And also showing the there's a great sequence where she shows the photo to a bunch of little kids and that's just asked ask them to to describe it it's a it's a really good really good uh uh short documentary that is um self-reflective in a lot of the ways that a lot of her films are so anyway sorry i was scanning forward and i saw just realized that i had skipped one yeah okay so i have nothing between gleaners and faces places i haven't okay. i haven't seen gleaners too too fast, too gleaning, whatever yeah. it's called now. Well, <laughs> two years gle- later. So the gleaners and I two years later is I didn't see it, but my understanding is it's not necessarily her revisiting the gleaners. It's the fact that so many people started gleaning based on hmm. on the gleaners and I that okay. she sort of talks. I think my understanding is that she talks to new, new gleaners, gleaners who were inspired by her film. Oh, all right. Um, so my next thing, the last short uh, documentary is called Edessa, the bears, etc., And it is a documentary about a Canadian um, installation artist named Edessa Handelis, um, who had an art installation that was, uh, okay, this is going to be a kind of a spoiler because the movie, the short does kind of treat it as a spoiler, but I'm going to tell you, um, you walk in and you think, wow, this is a picture of people with teddy bears you know, it's just, it like it, some of them are like little kids holding teddy bears. Some of them are whole families and there's a teddy bear on the corner. Some of them are like, like weird high school wrestling, wrestling teams that had like a teddy bear as a mascot. It's just walls and walls of pe- of pictures of people and teddy bears. And then it's not until you get to the end of the exhibit that you realize that they're all, uh, European Jews from the 1930s and 40s. They're all people who either had to flee Europe or went to concentration camps or, or were, uh, it becomes recontextualized by the end. Mm. And you, uh, it's not just a cute thing about teddy bears. It's, uh, anyway, it's a, it's a, um, it's very much her making a documentary about another artist's work. It's still in her style, but she seems very reverent of Edessa Hindela's, uh, art. And Edessa Hindela's is a character in, in and of herself. She's this very severe looking gaunt woman with long straight red hair mm. who has long fingernails and wears like a ring on every finger. Hmm. Um, she's a very, she's quite a character uh, herself. So that's uh, Edessa, the bears, etc., uh, from 2004. 
And then, so I'm, so I'm sad that you haven't seen Somehow, the Beaches of Agnes. I haven't seen Beaches because it has my favorite quote that I see on the internet all the time. That I was trying to be a joyful feminist, but I was very angry. Oh, yeah. Somehow, uh, keep missing that. Every time it streams, it was another one. It was on movie, and then I forgot to watch it. Before. I think this one might be on Canopy. That might have been where I watched it. I got to get a library card. I don't have um, Canopy. We didn't oh, have yeah. it in Atlanta. Yeah? Yeah, it wasn't part of the Atlanta library system. Um, yeah, it's pretty great. I mean... You can only watch ten. But it has a, a month, um, but it has a um, throwback to or beaches does right. to the whale in the whale art in. Oh, okay. Mirrors, I, I watched them out of. I, I, yeah. My one thing. I love Beaches of Agnes, but I really wish that I had watched it last, or at least mm. because it it includes so much, so much other ones, stuff, including yeah. going back to the point court, like where she shot um, that movie and talking to. Uh, that now, like, I mean, this is so long ago, I and mean, this is 53 years later, so yeah. she, there's a part where, in the point court, where um, you see a, when the fishermen, you see a boy rowing a boat boat full of the shrimp or whatever they, or what yeah. are they, or not shrimp, they're like clams or whatever they're, yeah, I think they're clams. clams. And you see a boy rowing, rowing the boat. boy. And he's an old, he's like a senior citizen now. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, I need to catch this one. Uh, it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's so, it, it's, just in Connor, it's a, it's a autobiographical documentary, but it's also very much specifically about her I really, films. I really wish they could somehow untangle all of the rights and do, you know, like that big, huge Bergman set. Oh, right. I yeah. would like just every single Varda film in a giant, like, yeah. potato-shaped, you know, <laughs> box. And I would... I Not cat-shaped? Could be cat-shaped yeah. with a potato on the inside. I don't care. Yeah. I would love that. Uh one of my favorite parts of the beaches of Agnes is she goes to her childhood home and you can see in the narration, she's critical of her own cinematography in the part where she's like, oh, I didn't get a good shot of the garden or whatever. <laughs> and then she, the, the, the current owners who let her in to film, it turns out the, 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 the husband of this of this couple is a model train enthusiast. And so this is going back to something I said way back at the beginning of the episode. There's like a five minute section of the Beaches of Agnes where it's just a like about this model train enthusiast. <laughs> she just clearly like stumbled upon this man she wasn't didn't know anything about, yeah. was fascinated by with the thing that fascinated him and decided to devote a chunk of her movie amazing. Uh, to to his model train collection. I love it. Um yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff like that, and there's just she has especially you see it in this in faces places, and I didn't talk about the end of the Gleaners and I. Oh my god, where the, yeah. she has the museum pull out that painting of old time Gleaners, yeah. and it's so simple, and I'm like almost tearing up just thinking about how beautiful that last couple of shots of that movie are, and uh, and then she recreates it. Yeah, uh, oh. yeah, and Beaches of Agnes uh, has. Um, similar moments of, of grace. It's also very funny that the, uh, um, and I, I, I tweeted this, uh, when, when I watched the movie, I thought of one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite movies, which is in Wayne's world, <laughs> when he's asked about the shitty Beatles and he says, also talking. directed by a woman. Yes. So there you go. Um, it's like the shitty Beatles. Are they any good? No, they suck. And he goes, Oh, so it's not just a clever name. <laughs> the beaches of Agnes, not just a clever name. There's beaches all over the movie. Yeah. Like a lot of the movie takes place at beaches. And, uh, I, I thought that was, that was very funny. What's um, the French title? Uh, does it have a, uh, of the beaches of Agnes? I'm sure it yeah. does. 
Uh, oh, it's just La Playa's dad. And okay, Daniels. yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, yeah, that one. Literal uh, translation. Uh, yeah, that, that one I cannot recommend uh, enough uh, to you. Um, and then I guess we're jumping ahead to Faces Places. Yeah, I actually, so I thought I had seen her Mew Mew, her Mew, Mew short, um, Three Buttons. But then I realized that I haven't. Okay. I just meant to. So Mew Mew <laughs> oh, does Mew Mew does all these um with they call her women's tales is what they're called and okay. they have like sometimes it's directors you've heard of like Ava DuVernay did one and sometimes um it was before she was really like Ava brand household brand name uh-huh. um where they are basically short commercials for their collection but shot by women telling a certain women's story so like the Ava ones about um women coming to make a woman feel better when her after a bad breakup and things like that. And, um, the reason I keep meaning to watch the Agnes one and I keep forgetting is, uh, Miranda July posted a photo of her with Agnes and everyone was like, what, how? And it's cause Miranda July had done one and then Agnes did one. And then they were both at the Mew Mew, like, you know, fashion week that time. And, um, that's awesome. I'm thinking it's got to be delightful because basically in some of them don't even have people. There was one that um, I think Alice Rowicher did it where um, she's Italian director where oh, um, the, okay, where the, for the listeners, Italian director. If you listened to yeah. uh, me and Tyler's top 10 of 2018, you definitely heard me discuss Happy is Lazaro or Lazaro Felice, which is my top 10. Film. Yeah. Yes. Um, hers, she made the clothes like non, like stop motion. It was just the clothes without people it was crazy so like i don't know okay i haven't seen it but i I haven't seen it but i guarantee you it's amazing it's uh the trois boutons yeah um i'm I'm literally trying to learn some french an hour of faces Uh, places um yes i am going to paris this fall and i definitely want to go to the rue de guerre and see uh, the places that some of these movies Um, have you been to paris before uh when i was 17 so so not not recently i recommend in the gare du nord like when you're there and like basically the subway um, there's oh, okay the Gare du Nord the okay. Gare du Nord it's like the main um yeah. I hub. think I'm staying by the Gare du Est okay well should you end up in the Gare du Nord okay. there is a um bakery okay near where all the trains are and it's the greatest chocolate croissant I've ever had in my entire life okay chocolate I ate that 10 years ago and I'm still thinking about it Okay, so. uh, I'll, I'll I'll try to make it up to the Gare du Nord. Um, you, if you're going anywhere in the subway, eventually you wind up in the Gare du Nord for like yeah, it's like Grand Central Station. You end up having to okay, like end up there at some point. Well, apparently I'm staying. <coughs> sorry, I have something in my throat. Uh, I'm staying right by the Big Lebowski bar. Oh yeah, <laughs> called Le Dude. That's important. Uh, <laughs> that was probably not there ten years ago. To yeah. Be <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, faces places. I feel like uh, this is the one that people probably listening are most likely to have seen, seen because yeah, it was really for an Oscar recently. Broke you know, it never played theatrically in Atlanta. Is that true? Isn't that weird? It played all over. It played in like three different towns in Tennessee. It played in North Carolina, played in Florida. It maybe it was in Athens, but I don't even know that it played Athens. I, <sighs> That's interesting. I'm pretty sure it played happened? Boise where my mom lives. Yeah. And yet not Atlanta. I saw it at the NoHo 7. Nobody managed just, to get it. I'm just going to talk about how great North Hollywood I, is this whole episode. I do love, I used to live, yeah. dear listeners, in North Hollywood, and uh, the NoHo 7 is amazing. Yeah. So. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, this is another um, 
uh, well, it's a, another movie about an artist. It's about me. It's, it's so many other things. It's a road trip movie. Friendship. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, um, unusual connections. The, the thing I mentioned earlier about, um, in diary of a pregnant woman, the like gross, but beautiful, you know, food and stuff. There's a scene where they go in the grocery store and she's like, it's like one of those skate fish things, you know, where its face is just <laughs> awful and has like a nose or whatever. It just looks disgusting. And she's just looking at it and she's like, it's disgusting. I love it. Or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, yes. Um, anytime I go into like a grocery store in the last two years, I look at it and think what in here would Varda take a photograph of because she takes photographs of so much oh, yeah. food in that movie that I'm always like, would she photograph this? I'm going to photograph it. Yeah. Yeah. There is, I forgot there is a whole part in daguerreotype in the, in the grocery store where there? a woman is, uh, um, they don't, they don't have the kind of milk she wants. And it's a whole long like negotiation <laughs> between this, uh, her neighbor and the, and the grocers. Um, but yeah. Uh, so, Faces Places is directed by Agnes Varda and JR officially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I feel like it shouldn't be this rare, but it is rare for someone to, like Agnes Varda, to age as a respected artist and still always have so much respect for younger artists. Yeah. You see it with, like I mentioned, Edessa and the Bears, or Edessa and the Bears, etc. And even going back to Murmurs, there's a lot of younger artists there. I mean, she doesn't... There's nothing... She is not in any way being like um, uh, a treat, treating patronizing. Patronizing exactly yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, toward toward Jr. Uh, she really respects his work. They're just they're just friends. Yeah. You know, um, and he's and he's so sweet with her. It's so it's so much fun to watch just their relationship. Even if you didn't have all of the other great aspects of the film and all the places that they photograph and people they meet. Just having a documentary of just the two of them being friends, I would watch. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, they're so lovely together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I was surprised watching it that it had the whole Godard section, which ends up being the oh uh, emotional, like, uh, sort of yeah. crescendo of the movie, yeah. I guess. Um, uh, or at least leading to the the emotional crescendo which actually comes from JR the, yeah. like so it's a move so we have this whole thing about you mentioned friendship they have this whole thing about she's in Godard's town she's going to meet up with him this rekindle this old friendship she brought uh, him his favorite pastry yeah and then he is very he doesn't show up because he's Godard and he's a total dick uh and then she has this beautiful moment with her new friend and yeah. uh well, and even after he's such a dick and she's like, you're a dirty brat or whatever uh-huh. it is. She's also like, she turns to him and she's like, that's, that's who he, I'm sorry. That's who he is. Yeah. Like he's, she doesn't, she's one of those ones where it's like, she wishes that he was the friend that he was at some point, but she realizes that he was never like, she's not surprised even though she's disappointed. Yeah. You know? And you're like, oh man, what a uh, friendship. Yeah. Uh, um, but also- then, but then with the beautiful, like true friendship with JR where they're, they're going to spend this lovely moment together, like yeah. eating the pastry and just yeah. enjoying yeah, such a each great other's movie. company. It's, it's lovely. Uh, and the stuff with her eyesight, I really love mm-hmm. um, because she's a visual artist. Like that must have always been, you know, I would imagine anyone who works with like a pianist is always concerned about arthritis and right. things like that. And someone who's, whose eyesight is their like 
you know, tool. Yeah. It was devastating to think that she might start losing it. Yeah. Uh, but it's still the movie even before we jump right to the end of it, but even before that it, it encompasses all of the, the humanism we've talked about before. It's just her and JR going across the French countryside and taking pictures of locals and then putting the pictures huge on their, the places that define them. Um, this one has a great French title, yes. uh, visage village. Yeah. Which uh, is the same. Uh, yes, but it, uh, um, I think it sounds prettier than Faces it does, Places. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say about Faces Places um, uh, or about Anisvarda in general? It's just, I just love fa- Faces Places so much. Also, there's a lot of great last tidbits with cats in this uh-huh. one. So many cats. Well, um, um, we did it. We talked about a bunch of Anya Svarta movies, but um, I want to see more. There, there are yeah, like, things we both um, I, I, I want to see. Jaco Denant. Yeah, um, there's a m- most. I think I'm only missing three or four of her features, mm-hmm. but a whole bunch of shorts. Yeah, like, there's a lot of shorts. So many there. shorts. Um, um, but I have one thing and the other doesn't. So I'll get. I'll, 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 that one I have no excuse other than I've been sick. So yeah. I will watch it and I'm looking forward to it. Although I know I don't normally like musicals, but I don't know that it's actually a musical. There's only one part that I would right, actually describe as a like a, there's a lot of musical performances. There's only one part that I would actually say is a musical number got where, it, where it, it sort of breaks from the reality. But I don't always dislike musicals. Something like the lure I really liked. And that I didn't was, see the lure. that's, it's like a rock yeah. musical mermaid vampire movie thing. Well, on the opposite lot. of you, I generally do like musicals. Yeah. I like, it was rough. We, a couple years ago when I worked at TCM, we had like musical month uh-huh. and everyone's like, so Mariah's doing the marketing on that. Right. And, and that's a joke, you know, so I was like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I think the, I don't have that much to sum up because we hit a lot of the main points, I think in terms of her, um, her, her natural curiosity as a filmmaker and her humanism and her feminism, um, and her, uh, willingness to make a movie whatever she needed it to be and not follow any sort of yeah. uh, uh, construct that um, but uh, the thing that I really took away that I uh, that I think I'd only seen it like I said I only seen a handful before I've now seen 14 features and three shorts and I honestly feel like if I were to make a list today of my favorite directors of all time it would now have Anya Svarta yeah as it as it should uh, yeah. she always makes my top 10 like yeah. it's hard to it's hard to leave her off um, because she's made so many like just indelible moments for me. Um, but she's one that I came to late. And I mean, this was really the project. The reason I did a year with women, you know, in 2015 was there were people like Varda who I had seen Cleo when I was in college. It, Cause that's one, like I said, if there's one film, yeah. you know, Cleo will be on there or Jean Delmont will be on there and then you're out. No other women ever made movies. And, um, (laughs) you know, and those two women only made one movie each. Um, but then it took me 10, 10 years after that to get to the rest of her films. Um, and it was because I purposefully was seeking out films by women. They didn't like, and I'm a, you know, I was an active movie watcher and they Mm -hmm. weren't, they weren't being served to me. And that's a bummer. And I think thankfully with like the Renaissance of faces places really broke, um, surprisingly as her last film it really was her most commercially successful film mm-hmm. she talks about this in a lot of her interviews where um there's a great i don't know if it's a great film but it's a great a film full of great 
interview is called The Great Directors. Okay. And it's like her and David Lynch and Susan Seidelman. I can't remember who else. All, um, no, Susan Seidelman's a different movie. Um, okay. That's, I watch these movies at the same time. There's a movie when Wenders made that has Susan okay. Seidelman in it with inter- directors being interviewed. But The Great Directors has a lot of like modern directors talking about their work and Varda is part of it. And, and she talks about how her, none of her films ever made any money. And yeah how much, you know, how hard it was to get funding. And that's why she's like started filming on like videotape. And that's what Gleaners is on yeah. you know, videotape. And it's funny that Faces Places would break through in a way that none of her other films ever really managed to do. And now that she's dead, she is considered one of the great filmmakers. And there were circles that always considered her one of the great filmmakers, but it wasn't like taught widely and it wasn't talked about. Like if you're, given a syllabus right and you mm-hmm. get 10 spots and you get one french filmmaker it's probably going to be godard but i think now if you get one french filmmaker there's going to be people who are going to say it's going to be varda <laughs> you know and and that's says a says a lot about how she was the one woman and then she's still like fighting to mm-hmm. get a you know space at the table and but she's changed the whole way of how we even like make films so yeah well, that's uh, very well said. Um, I don't have anything else to add. So you can, uh, well, first off, thank you for being here. Yeah, this is uh, good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we hope to have you back more often. Well, now that, and, I'm, now that I'm back. Yeah. And we will do, yeah, I don't want to keep pigeonholing you as the person we bring, bring on to talk about female <laughs> directors. We can talk about other things, too, like musicals. Yes, um, I'll be here for the musical show. So uh, you can find us at, uh, you can find, I say us, Tyler's not here uh, right now, but you can find the me The spirit Tyler. of Tyler's uh, here. Yes. Yeah. You can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. His microphone is here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is where you can find um, all sorts of uh, reviews and other stuff. Uh, let's see, just rolling through uh, the What the Hell Are You Watching podcast is doing a series on romantic comedies. They talked about the new Always Be My Maybe um, over on the, oh yeah, sign up for the Patreon. Over the Patreon, we talked about our, Tyler and I talked about our top five, top five films of 1997 because that was the date the randomizer gave us. And so we, off the cuff, talked about our top five films of 1997. Uh, Alex wrote about Uncle Boon Me. Uh, you've got reviews this week of Toy Story 4, of the Toni Morrison documentary, of Child's Play, of The Command, which was uh, is the new Thomas Vinterberg movie that uh, mm. uh, originally premiered at TIFF under the title Kursk. Um, oh, and I, oh yes, I have to tell you, uh, listeners, uh, our friend Jim Rohner, who does a podcast called I Do Movies Badly. Have you heard of I Do Movies mm-hmm. Badly? So he has a guest on the beginning of every month uh, who reckon, recommends three movies by a filmmaker or within a genre that he's not familiar with. And um, because he lost, literally because he lost a bet to me, I got to go on and do Mumblecore. So I made him watch Funny Haha this week. So you can listen to Jim talk about Funny Haha. All of this and more is at the website, um, BattleshipRetention.com. You can email me at David at BattleshipRetention.com. Tyler at Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. I'm on twitter at davy pretension tyler's on twitter at tyler pretension mariah where can people find you on the internet um literally everywhere it's old films flicker so on twitter on instagram on i check movies on i think movie i don't know i think so on movie i don't use letterboxd but i do have old films flicker on letterboxd Um, no one's gonna have my name so i kept it but i don't have anything on there yeah um i have a 
quite a few followers who are following literally nothing, but you know, they're waiting for me to like finally I'm, use I'd it. I guess. Follow you. Um, I know yeah. I follow you on Tumblr. Yeah. I, oh yeah. Well, Tumblr yeah. is, um, yeah, I've been on Tumblr for 10 years. So, and every once in a while, I just got to get my fix of Hopefully still images good. from bright star, you know, cause <laughs> you know, know I'm going to serve that, you know, <laughs> yeah. every day there's a bright star image. That's what my cat's named after Miss Fanny Braun. Oh, um, and then I have a website, cinema-fanatic.com, but I, I used to write a whole lot more before I started working for the man and I am tired all the time. So I, um, do a monthly recap of everything I watched with like capsule reviews of my, like roughly five, sometimes eight favorite movies I watched for the month. Um, although I've been watching a lot of television lately, so like not the television anyone else is watching. So sometimes I write about, yeah. that so yeah. um i've fallen down this like spanish tv rabbit hole right now that it's all very soapy and i yeah really love it so that sounds fun i'm all about food competition shows chopped you know the great food truck race you know what i also love what's that i'm not gonna lie i love guy fietti oh yeah sure and i stumbled across his uh, star he just got a star on the walk of fame oh, yeah. and it's on the way to the hollywood and vine stop from my house and i was like oh, i found it Took a photo with it. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I um, yeah. I will often. I because yeah. I also like diners, drivers, and dives. Except sometimes I will intentionally, if I'm scrolling and it's on, I will not watch it because I know it's gonna make me too hungry. Yeah, it always makes me hungry. Yeah, so I'm like, I can't watch that right now. And and always it'll be like he'll go to a town that I've either visited or lived in, like Atlanta, where he talked about this taco joint in Atlanta, and this was an episode that aired after I moved here, and uh-huh. I was like, how did I not know about this taco joint for three yeah. years? Like. What is happening? Like well, when I moved from San Francisco, same thing. The, I apparently used to live near the best cornbread in all of San Francisco. Didn't know about it. Uh, well, at least uh, <laughs> and Triple D's given you. Uh, so good. Yeah. Okay. So um, thanks again for being here. Yeah. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 